However, your go-to-market team is structured to shepherd the customer down that journey. That's how enablement should be structured too, is to support those efforts. Welcome to the State of Sales Enablement Podcast with your host, Felix Kruger. Insights and actionable advice from B2B marketing and sales experts that share what it takes to achieve sales enablement excellence. If you are an enablement leader and you have the budget to hire a team, chances are that you have proven enablement's business value. The hiring decisions you make next will determine if you can take things to the next level and maintain momentum, or if the CFO will crash the party and start a discussion around budget cuts. Our guest in this week's episode is an enablement superstar who has built a number of teams throughout her career. She will share her insights into what it takes to build a team of A players that manage to make your strategic enablement vision a reality. Please welcome Cheryl Bushek. Cheryl, welcome to the State of Sales Enablement. Great to have you here. Thank you so much, Felix. It's great to be here. Cheryl, we've been talking a lot in the past, but today I specifically want to talk to you about a topic that I'm really curious to tap into and really understand your background in that regard. But before we get going, what is your background and what is a fact that we should all know that is little known about Cheryl? Oh, goodness. Okay. Background-wise, I've been in enablement for roughly 10 years formally. And before that, I did enablement as a key part of my product marketing roles for a couple of different companies. Sales training was part of my job, and it happened to be the part I loved the most. So I ended up in sales enablement right after I helped Citrix build their new mobility division. I got invited to be part of that build. And a lot of my job as a leader in product marketing was going out and training our field on this new market we were approaching, our target buyers, how to position and sell our product line alongside what they already knew how to sell. And I trained our partners too. That whole thing was very much enablement. And shortly thereafter, there was a formal function formed at Citrix. And then I got to be part of that as well. And the rest is history. I've worked for companies big and small, and soon I'll start work for another bigger company. <laughs> awesome. And what is a little known fact about Cheryl Bushag that we should all know about? Okay. So there are two things, and I, there are so many strange things about me, Felix. I wasn't sure exactly what I wanted to reveal. But number one fun fact is I do love team sports, especially American football, and I love to play fantasy football, and I've been in a fantasy football league for many years, and I've been the champion two out of the last five years and made the playoffs all the time. So I'm really good at fantasy football. The other little-known fact that is kind of amusing is for those of you that are older like me, I am one of the original Valley Girls. If you ever saw the movie Valley Girl, that is where I grew up. I grew up in Sherman Oaks. I watched the whole Sherman Oaks gallery get baked and built. I am an original Valley girl. So if you run any videos and you need somebody to speak Valley as a part of your skit, I can do that. <laughs> excellent. Excellent. Well, I might uh, take you up on the offer uh, later in this podcast. But <laughs> the topic that I want to talk to you about, just simply because you've got so much experience in that space as a sales enablement leader, is the building of sales enablement teams. And I want to cut straight to the chase and ask you, how do you structure your enablement team 
in an ideal world, if you had unlimited budget, like what is your blueprint for structuring your enablement team? It's an interesting question because with unlimited budget, there's so much you can do. I think the best thing that anybody can do is think about role-based enablement. And there's some horizontal pieces to enablement teams, and there's some verticalized pieces. And I like to verticalize. It's a very matrixed organization overall. But here's what I came up with when I had a larger team a couple of jobs ago. I had specific people that were focused on end-to-end role-based programs. So ramp to productivity and everboarding and thinking about that whole cycle, the whole employee journey for a specific role. So anything that happened, they could be the SME in how does this change or this new sales initiative impact people in this role? What did they need to do differently than they did before? What are their conversations going to look like? So some people heavily focused on role-based and they would be in charge of things like programs and content for that role. At the same time, I think you do need a dedicated group for onboarding. And when you think about an onboarding group, you think about when you ramp people to productivity per role, how do you know when anybody is ramped? What are the metrics associated with that? What are the skills and competencies that you need people to have for each of those roles? And how do you build a holistic and leveraged ramp to productivity program across each individual role? So there are foundations that everybody does, and then there are branches and people have their own tracks that they do. So there's onboarding. And then similarly, I have a separate team that's focused on job mastery and everboarding, things like medpick skills and soft skills and overarching how do people consume programs ongoing that help them achieve high levels of performance in that role. Because every role has its own take on what it is to master your job. And from there, you need somebody to manage and enable upon the systems and tools. So enablement platforms are all about engagement and administration. So you definitely need somebody in charge of that. And if part of your responsibility is partner enablement, you need somebody heavily dedicated to partner enablement. My last role, I also had customer enablement. So you would need somebody entirely dedicated to customer enablement. And then finally, I think it's very important to have engaging content. So having a couple of content SMEs, like how do you take raw content and make it into engaging learning using the platforms you have? I had a couple of people at one of my roles where they were so good at the creative part, at video, and at making what could be boring content engaging and impactful so that people wanted to do the programs. A couple of content SMEs is super important. The last role that I think is very important that I always want to have is what I call change management. Somebody that is focused on management of process changes, like if you're changing the sales process, system changes, like changes that may happen in Salesforce, pricing changes, new product introductions or new product versions and how we operationalize that in our enablement programs somebody responsible and accountable for change management across the board and how we execute that, super important. That's a synopsis of kind of how I think about sectioning off or segmenting an enablement team, given unlimited 
people funding. There are some vendors that I like for certain types of soft skills as well, but I don't want to make a commercial for anybody. There are lots of excellent vendors for soft skills and those sorts of things. Excellent. So lots of unpack here, but I just want to dive deeper into a couple of points that you mentioned. Number one, when you say role-based enablement, for those listeners that might be new to enablement or want, might want to break into enablement, what does that specifically mean? And what did that look like in your specific role when you started building your enablement team? I would say everything kind of came to bear more at Infoblocks, yeah. where I was able to show value with the team I started with and then grow my team out and build more value on top of that. And the way I did that was we started with heavily focused on a sales role. So everything was kind of peanut butter spread across everybody, but it was designed for our sellers, our account executives, our account managers. Other people took advantage of what we built for salespeople. But one of the things that happened was as I was able to show value, I said, hey, you know, who specializes in pre-sales enablement? And the answer was they were enabling themselves. So I said, I can take that off your plate. And I said, let's have some people dedicated to pre-sales. Super important role globally. They need some very in-depth technical pieces that your sellers don't need. In fact, in a lot of ways, the pre-sales team is so critical to teach the technical and the sales skills to, they have a very long ramp. So you want to make sure you give them their own programs. And then you have your upfront BDRs. If you think about the buyer and customer journey, really, it's just who are you accountable and responsible for serving in that whole revenue journey and customer journey? So in a full-fledged revenue enablement team, I would expect you have role-based people for sales, pre-sales, BDRs, customer success, renewals, and even like professional services and your support teams. Who does enablement for professional services and support? Because they're super critical in the customer journey alignment. So I think of everybody that's engaged and involved in the whole customer journey and who are you going to focus your role-based programs upon? So silos, especially in bigger organizations, is obviously a real problem. And as your enablement team grows, and especially if you have specialized enablement resources that focus on specific roles, for example, there's obviously the danger that there's also silos on the enablement side, right? How do you make sure that best practices across those different enablement functions are really passed on and information is shared so that, for example, the pre-sales team can pass on best practices that they've identified internally onto the account management team or the BDR team? It's a great point. Although I may have people focused on specific roles, that does not mean everybody works in a vacuum and they put on their blinders and say, I'm going to build all my own content and all my own programs. No. <laughs> we all need to speak the same language. We all line up to the customer journey. And there's a lot of leverage that happens across those different roles. Like we know buyer acumen is something every team member needs. There's a lot of content and a lot of programs that everybody can consume and get value from. And I will say, when you think about more technical roles, for like pre-sales and professional services. And in some companies, customer success has a more technically oriented function. In others, it's more of a high-level function. I think the magic of 
teams and enablement is you get leverage from each other and you get the best ideas from each other. And because today's more modern sales teams, it's like a pot of whales. It's not like sales goes and they do this and pre-sales does this. Everybody is working together and working together with one voice so that the customer sees everybody as one voice. So by definition, that means we cannot have separate siloed enablement programs. People have to speak the same language, operate utilizing the same view of how we help promote and communicate to the customer using that single voice and using a single source of what the truth is for that customer. So nothing in enablement should be siloed. People have focus areas. That does not mean there are silos. We work together to make sure that we're supporting the whole revenue team and creating that teaming model so that everybody really is working together. That's part of enablement is teaching people how to work together effectively to execute. So no, not about silos. It's about focus areas. But I think every project I have run as an enablement leader that's meant to address big rock initiatives for the whole revenue group, it takes multiple people working on that one big rock program so that every piece of the org gets tailored and personalized content and programs and they get what they need in the moment they need it. So it's working together, but providing personalized experiences for those different roles that are highly relevant to what they're doing day to day in working with customers. So when it comes to actually acquiring talent, it's obviously the ideal case is that you assemble this all-star team of enablers, especially you have a larger enablement team. So ignoring the specific areas of focus for enablers, what do you commonly see making top talent and how do you go about identifying these traits when hiring? I think with all things, it depends on the org and it depends on your structure and it depends on what you need and any gaps that you see in your team that you need to fill. But in general, when I hire top enablement talent, usually they're not focused on doing one thing all the time. The top enablement talent for me are people that they're adaptable. They can do multiple components. So yes, they can get up in front of a classroom and deliver a session, but they can also put together content. They can drive programs from beginning concept to design to development to launch. They can do multiple aspects of the very broad enablement day-to-day -day tasks. So they can't just do one thing for most companies. And you'd have to have a monstrous enablement team. You can't be completely specialized. I think that's the downfall. Most of the time, as organizations transform and go through phases, you know, you have your first 100 million of ARR, then you go 100 to 500, then 500 to a billion. Whatever phase you're in requires some different things from enablement. So I need people in general that are multifaceted. I really want people that can get up in front of a group and present and teach when needed. If what you do is more on the back end, that's okay, but you have to be able to do a multitude of things. Other things that are very important in enablement, I think, are communication skills, whether it's written or spoken word. Communication is a key part of everything in enablement. A lot of what we do is communicate effectively. 
Sometimes it's not teaching. It's a communication that you need to bring everybody onto the same page. So communication and creativity, and because we are in large part connective tissue, being able to align people together towards a common goal and leading a team that you don't manage. It's a cross-functional team usually that's built to accomplish something specific. Being able to drive around a specific set of deliverables that are meant to achieve a specific goal, we need people that can run projects and programs like that and inspire people they don't manage to come and row the boat with them and help develop and launch programs and content. I think having other things that I think make great enablers are kind of a customer-focused and consultant mentality. So when people come to you and say, oh, we need to do this, then being able to sit back and ask some questions and do discovery like, I hear you, but can you tell me the broader context? Can you explain to me what you're trying to do at that top level? That means you want, we need a training on objection handling or we need to do a competitive training. What are you seeing that you're trying to address? Like, how will we know we'll be successful if we do something here? And just getting an understanding of what somebody is trying to accomplish. And if necessary, saying, oh, that sounds great. Let me ask you a couple more questions to make sure that what I put together helps you get to where you're trying to go. I think enablers need to be thinkers and not just take people at face value when they come to you and say, we need a training on X. And asking those why questions, it's not dissimilar to what we want our salespeople to do with their customers. But having a purpose-built, why are we doing this? Oh, I see the goal and I see how I'm going to measure what wild success means in accomplishing what you're trying to. And maybe you don't need a training. Maybe people aren't selling product XYZ that you're trying to grow sales in because they can make their numbers selling the easy stuff. Maybe there need to be incentives. Or maybe what people need to understand is what buyers are looking for and get more comfortable in talking to those buyers. Like, we need a training on competing. Well, let's think about that. Why are we losing this deals? Is it because our salespeople don't know how to compete? Or is there something else at play here? So I think being thinkers, being consultative, and helping people reach those top-line goals has to be the focus of enablement. And you have to have some pretty darn good skills to be able to do that. So one role that you mentioned earlier was a dedicated change management person, right? And a lot of times, enablement teams would not be able to afford somebody with that dedicated specialist skill set. Do you think at this point in time, having led teams, there's a lot of enablement talent out there that actually has change management skills? And do you think it's really valuable for sales enablement professionals to actually invest in those skills? It's an interesting question. And it's funny, Felix, I was talking to somebody earlier today about how Change management is a critical and ongoing component of all enablement. Because think about this, like sometimes your change is we are revamping our sales process. Sometimes that's a change. Sometimes it's we're launching a new version of an existing product. And of course, there's enablement around that. If you launch a new version, then you think, okay, so what's new and how does it change these conversations? Some change is a pricing change. If you're changing your pricing, What does that mean for your sales team? If they have to do quotes, what do they need to learn to do differently? 
Are you changing just the dollars or are you changing the pricing structure? And then if you think that through, you think, okay, so you're changing pricing. How does that impact renewals when they have their renewals conversations? Do they have to have a, a conversation for the customer at the old price on shifting to the new price? So change management is in enablement, regardless of whether you have somebody focused on it. I think it's just calling out that there are unique capabilities in executing change management and bringing people with you through change that is a part of your methodology and how you operationalize enablement as a whole. There are small changes, like we're changing a field in Salesforce. That's still a change. How are you going to roll that out to the field? It's in a newsletter. Do we repeat it in a training? We wrap it into onboarding and make sure we set expectations about how you are supposed to utilize Salesforce, how you're supposed to fill in the fields. So there are little changes like that that require small level pieces. But then there are big changes like, hey, we're launching an entirely different product line where you're going to have to go talk to a new set of buyers. That's a huge change. And to quote an example from a previous company, we transformed the business from kind of a traditional legacy business into a SaaS business. That's a massive multi-year change. How do you bring all the people with you through that massive multi-year change step-by-step and phase-by-phase? All levels of change management. And enablement plays a key role for all of those things. When you talk to some sales leaders, especially in organizations where enablement hasn't been successful for whatever reason, right? The environment might not have been right or there might have been other reasons, but there are voices that are critical about enablement and they say, oh yeah, they just, they produce administrative overhead. They just keep everybody busy. They just keep sellers away from selling and so on. The bottom line of this argument is that enablement doesn't produce the business impact that those leaders would like to see. And especially with larger enablement teams, how do you really make sure that everybody always consistently stays aligned and maintains that laser-sharp focus on business impact in their work? It's a great question and super important right now, Felix. I mean, you and I both know there are a lot of great enablement people who are out of work. I was one of them until very recently. So I think there is nothing more important that an enablement leader can do then focus all big rock initiatives for enablement on the OKRs of the business. So if I think about the segments of enablement, I mentioned onboarding. And obviously, when you ramp people, the quicker you can get people productive in their jobs, the quicker they can start making contributions. And you do have to have good metrics around how quickly you're ramping people and show that Enablement working in conjunction with managers and with their HR teams, we work, we row the boat together, and we help people ramp into the company, ramp into their job roles, ramp to using your tools effectively, ramp their skills, and make sure that there are actual leading and lagging indicators that say, okay, I can see they're doing the right activities. We set the expectations that if you're in this role, you should be having five meetings a week with your existing customer base and one partner meeting a week. And there are activity metrics that you can see. Are they doing the right things? You should have some skill assessments that relate to, hey, what are the competencies that make people successful at this role? 
And how do we help build the competencies that drive success? And then, you know, if you're in sales, you're looking for, hey, are they having conversations? Are they doing well? And are they building pipeline? And not just, oh, I inherited pipeline, so I have pipeline. No, you're building your own pipeline. When do we start to see that? How quickly can people start to build pipeline? Then how quickly can they take that pipeline and progress their deals and get to their first sets of victories? And then how do we ramp people to full quota? So A, having metrics to measure what you actually are helping drive an enablement, super important. And for job mastery, so I mentioned that part of my team is focused on job mastery. You have ramp to productivity, and then you have the people that are focused on ongoing effectiveness and productivity. And everything that team does should be aligned to what are those corporate and revenue goals every year. So if you have FY23 revenue goals, awesome. How, you know, you have growth goals. How does that break down into, oh, are we expanding existing accounts with more products or higher ASPs for their existing? Are we expanding the user base that we already have? Or are we going to get new logos? It's always some sort of mix of both. But you have to understand, okay, we need everybody to go get this many new logos every quarter. And we need people to expand their existing accounts with new products or more users. And then on the renewal side, we need to make sure that customers are realizing the value we promised. And when they get to renewals, they renew. Like we got to get to a 120% net retention rate. And that's renew plus grow. So in enablement, once you take the growth goals and you say, okay, what are we trying to do this year? Where are we now? Where are we trying to be? If you're trying to increase sales productivity per head, great. How are we going to do that? What are the gaps that can prevent us to getting from here to where we want to be so that we hit all of our plans this year? What are the gaps? How can enablement help? What are all the key vectors that are going to contribute to that? How am I going to assess the skills of somebody and get them from here to here? And then how am I going to run programs that say, we see that there's weakness in people selling new product line X. Like hardly anybody is even building pipeline. Oh, great. Okay. So before we can have closed deals, we need pipeline. What can we do to help people start having those conversations and start building pipeline and get high participation in rolling that type of business? So we can build an enablement program with outcomes in mind and say, be very clear about we're building this program because we see people are not building pipeline even, and we want to see people building more qualified pipeline, and then we can take it the rest of the way. But it starts with pipeline. So you build a program, say, buyer acumen. Who should you be targeting? How do you do discovery? What are the early objections you're going to encounter? How do you qualify that what the customer is looking for is a value we can provide? Do qualification, do quotes, get it in pipeline. So we built a program around that and we had knowledge, we had pitchbacks. So, you know, it was a multi-vector program and it wasn't a one and done. So we said, you start here. And then we're going to keep reinforcing that. And managers, here's what you should be doing when you have team meetings and you have one-on-ones. Oh, and who's doing it well? And how do we bring those stories forward of success? Like, what did you do? What did you say? What did you show? What were the demos? Whatever those things are, 
that are helping people be successful, how do we loop that back and bring that to everybody for whatever you're trying to accomplish? So everything we do should be focused on meeting corporate goals, meeting revenue goals, and showing very clearly how all of the big rock programs and initiatives and content link back to those OKRs. That's how to keep everybody focused on what matters. So being focused on those business outcomes, do you as a sales enablement leader trust your team and those with those respective areas of responsibility to collaborate with sales leadership on finding that alignment in terms of the metrics that truly matter and the metrics that will be used to evaluate success? Or is that something that you handle hands-on as a leader and then pass the execution onto your team? Like, What's your typical approach on that front? So historically, I have handled the what does success look like conversations with leaders? What are the metrics that we're trying to move? And how will we know if enablement is being successful? The alignment and agreement for our revenue leaders, that's something that I would handle as a leader. And then once we have that alignment and agreement, I will put it in writing. I'm a verify kind of person. So I will put it in writing and say, great meeting. Here's what I heard we agreed on as the success metrics for program XYZ. We should see this. We should see that. Here are the skills that we're trying to move. Here are the metrics in pipeline. Or if it's a deal closure and conversion to close deal program, here's what we should see move in our conversion rates or ASB, whatever the metrics are, put them in writing, say, here's what I heard. If I missed anything, please let me know. So I'll have those conversations and do that. And once we have that agreement, then I will bring those to my team and say, all right, we're putting together a program that's going to accomplish X and it's going to accomplish Y. And so then I'll hand it to them and say, that's the goal. I figure out what type of program or content could help move these needles. And then I can hand it to them and go. If they know what they're trying to do, my teams can go get it done. I may need to also go and gather some other people to help contribute to the task. So maybe we need somebody from marketing. Maybe we need somebody from the product team. Maybe we need some field team members. A lot of times we leverage field team members to help us with the delivery of some of those programs. But whatever the resources are, we can define who we need and we can request those. And because we aligned with leadership on what we were trying to do, and we say, we need these people to be successful in doing this the way that's going to make a difference, then we're good. I would say I can hand to my team and let them execute. But I am a verifier. So before we launch anything, I'm always going to do it myself and say, hey, we're going to do that. In fact, my group will do any online program or any program first as the alpha test and say, oh, we think that you could tweak this and this. And then we do a pilot with a couple of field team members, like our pilot group, and then they get full credit and they won't have to do it again. And then we launch to everybody. I want to follow up on the point you mentioned around the business committing resources to meet certain goals. There might be some enablement leaders listening right now that are looking for a new role and would like to find a new home. It is obviously important for enablement to be set up for success, right? And the worst case scenario for enablement and an enablement leader is to enter an organization where the expectation in enablement and the 
business goals doesn't really match the willingness of the business to invest into the enablement function and to provide those resources for enablement to succeed. How do you go about assessing whether there's a disconnect or not early on in the conversation with a new employer? Like what sort of tips can you give any enablement leaders looking for roles right now to actually assess whether the willingness of the business to invest in the enablement function really matches their strategic goals? This is interesting because you have to realize that something happened to me in my last job where I got sliced out two months in and then sadly, the rest of my team another month later was sliced out as well. So what I will say is if there is no enablement team and you're starting from scratch and you're the first one, which happens a lot, you reach a certain point and then you start to build enablement, then you have to be really clear and aligned about what you can do with one person. Like this is all an alignment exercise in my mind. What are the expectations of various leaders from what enablement is supposed to accomplish? And you have to have that alignment conversation around, okay, if you have two people, I have had groups where I've had two people. I've had groups with four people. I had a group with 11 people. What you can accomplish with the number of people and the amount of budget you have is a conversation that I think you have to have as part of your annual planning cycle. Before you enter an organization, I think it's hard to suss out. If you're entering as the first enablement person, I think the expectation is you're trying to solve for the biggest things first. And then if there's too much that the org is asking for, you have to sit down and rationalize and say, if I'm one person with 12 hours of working time in a day, hopefully it's not every day, but (laughs) you have to have an alignment meeting with your direct line manager and with the people above then with them with support from your frontline manager if you're the enablement leader. I, I think that it's hard, honestly. Before you get into an org, I think it's hard to suss out because you're trying to get the job. In this market especially, there are a lot of people looking. I would say I was a lot less challenging for people in today's market than I would have been in markets where it was a job seekers market, and you could be very finicky and ask a lot of questions. That's one level of market today. You have to do good discovery, I think, when you're interviewing with companies. And then once you get there, you do need to align around what are the success metrics for me personally in this role. Next year, somebody fed me this question. I think it was, oh, I'm going to call out Siobhan Thatcher fed me the best question. She said, the question is, Next year, you're on stage getting a big award for what enablement has done. Why would that happen? What would that look like? And so if you're interviewing somebody and they're envisioning themselves on stage, like, oh, what you're really trying to define is what would they define as wild success for enablement? And you're asking it in a really fun and interesting way that's more about the person getting an award. So I love that. I also love asking next year, one year from now, you nominate me for the MVP of the whole company. Why would that happen? So I think there are creative ways of sussing out what people think of as success for enablement and what their top priorities are, because the first thing they say will be their top priorities. If you come in and there are unreasonable expectations, you have to first meet with whoever your direct line manager is and say, here's what's happening. Here's what I'm being asked to do. Here's what I can do, given that it's just me or it's me and these two other people. 
So how do we make sure that we have the right priorities pop to the top and we set expectations with the whole rest of the leadership team? And that's where I would utilize my manager and other colleagues that are across the leadership org to set that alignment and expectation, say, first, we can do this and we'll get to this, but it has to happen after this because we can only do one or two big things per quarter. Awesome. Well, Cheryl, we're almost at the end of the conversation, but I always want to make these episodes as actionable as possible for our listeners. And because of that, I want to ask you, what is a step sales enablement leaders can take today to fast forward the assembly of their all-star enablement team? What is the very first thing you recommend they do today to start that journey? I think what has worked for me is you always start from somewhere, right? You enter an org, you have a team. I think the very best thing you can do right off the bat is make sure everything your team is focused on is meant to contribute to real results at the top line, like those organizational goals. So everybody has to do onboarding, having clarity around how onboarding drives more productivity in the org and having a very clear mirror on what's working and what's not and what you could do better. So I think pointing your org at things that make a difference and matter to achieving revenue goals is absolutely essential. And it's an alignment and agreement that says, here are the big things enablement is focused on this year. Here is how we will know whether or not they are wildly successful. Here's what great looks like. And that's what I'm tracking to, is the definition of what great looks like in Q1, Q2, Q3, Q4. We'll line up a plan that is completely lined up with where the organization wants to go and what the org wants to achieve. So I'd say you focus and prioritize and measure everything you do, whether it's a skill level or it's a hardcore productivity metric. And I'm a big fan of hardcore productivity metrics. Those are lagging indicators. There are a lot of contributors to those metrics. I know that. But enablement is a solid contributor two metrics that drive top-line growth. Yes. Awesome. Thank you so much, Cheryl. If anybody wants to connect with you and continue the conversation, where can they find you online? LinkedIn. I'm there all day. You can easily find me on LinkedIn. My last name is not very common, so you're not going to see more than one Cheryl Bushek. You may see other people with the last name of Bushek, but only one is named Cheryl. Awesome. Thank you so much, Cheryl. Thank you, Felix. Enjoyed the conversation immensely. Next time on The State of Sales Enablement. To me, if you break it down to its most basic intention, a charter is your plan. It is your plan for how you're going to move ahead with enablement, whether it's a new discipline or if you're evolving it. And the intent is also to bring everybody along with you so they understand where they participate, where they play, where they're accountable, so that you can be successful on the other side.